Our second reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Are you excited? Oh, come on, Virginia, UVA. I have to be honest, I didn't watch it. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know it happened. Put it that way. But it's lovely to be with you this morning. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if you have ever noticed or been struck by the way Jesus taught people. I mean, if you think about how you learned, for the most part, you went somewhere to learn, right? You went to school. You went to college. You come to church. So you come out of your day-to-day life and you go somewhere to learn, right? That's what we do. But what would it be like if the teacher came to where you are? Came to where you were living, hung out with your friends, and unlike most of our teaching where the teacher gets to ask the questions of you, You spent most of your time asking questions of the teacher. Now, I say that as an introduction to the passage we're going to look at this morning, because the second way is the way that Jesus taught. Jesus was a rabbi, yes? He was a rabbi, a teacher. In the Jewish tradition, most of his teaching was dialogue, and most of it happened in a context, in a response to a question that had been asked. And we're going to be looking this morning at the end of the age. So I get to feel like one of those gentlemen who walk around with a placard saying, the end is nigh, because that's what we're talking about this morning. 
And the temptation is to look at this text in abstract, to come out of our lives or come out of the context and say, well, let's try and figure it out and then apply it somehow to our lives. But actually, Jesus was teaching this in response to a disciple, a question um, from one of the disciples, and it happened in a very particular place, and it's extremely important to understand where this question happened. They were looking at um, the temple. That's behind that. There he is. That's the temple. Actually, it's a model of the temple. Some gentleman constructed that. It's quite small, actually, but the temple was huge. So this question, the text we're looking at, happened facing the temple. And it happened as Jesus is about to walk into Easter, the Passion. So Jesus has before him the physical structure of the temple and what he knows is going to take place, the crucifixion. And as he does that, he speaks to his disciples to prepare them, not so much to speculate about what might happen in 50, 100, 1,000, 2,000 years, but to tell them how to live now, how to respond now. And I want to pull three themes out of this teaching, and they are these. Number one, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived now. Two, don't be dismayed, but stay woke. And I'm going to explain why I use that word, which I know is slightly out of context. Don't be deceived, don't be dismayed, but stay woke, because the end is now. Let's pray. Lord, we read in uh, your scriptures your promise to the disciples that when they were in front of people, pulled up in front of people, it would be the Holy Spirit who spoke through them. So this morning, as we look at this text, this teaching that you gave your disciples, we pray that by your Spirit, you would speak to us about our own condition, our own hearts, our own lives, our own now. Lord, would you be with us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So can I have that picture of the temple up again? This is a temple that was built by Herod. It was the center of the spiritual and national life of Israel. Everything kind of resolved itself in the temple. And I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem, but there are little remains of it. And as you look down on the temple, you do feel like in some way you're looking at the center of the earth because three great monotheistic faiths, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, all make this the center, if you like, or a focus of their faith. And for Israel, that was particularly true. It was the center of spiritual, national, and the center of Israel's history, Israel's memory. But it also represented to the Jewish mind creation as it should be. The creation is a physical structure. Have you noticed that? It is. It's physical. It's good. And in this physical structure, there is, as all temples had in the ancient world, the image of the God. And who is the image of God? Us. We are the image of God. And where you have a physical structure in the image, what else do you have? You have the presence of God. And it's a little picture of what the creation should be like. The creation is a physical structure. It's good. It's not going to be chucked away. 
in which is the image of God and the presence of God. It's the image of creation as it should be. So it was incredibly important and also a source of great pride. People did not like Herod. Jewish people did not like Herod. He was a tyrant, but he built rather good buildings, and they were rather proud of them. Look, particularly, interestingly enough, Herod's stonework, or the craftsmen he used, were apparently very, very good. So it was a source of great pride and massive. I don't know if you can see how small the little people are, but it was big. Two days before September 11, I was up the World Trade Center. Just by chance, I happened to be in New York. And I went up those buildings, and they were massive, huge structures. And I remember standing on a rooftop in Brooklyn, watching them burn after the planes had hit. And one thing I was 100% sure of, having seen the massive scale of these structures, is there's no way these things are coming down. No way. Until, of course... So for the disciples, they're looking at the center of um, their national spiritual life, this massive building they're proud of, isn't it? It's huge. It can't possibly come down. And a little bit before the, the section we read, Jesus says to them, as he came out of the temple, they were in the temple, as Jesus came out of the temple with his disciples, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I have found, particularly in England, as a vicar, that's what this would represent, that people say, oh, you must be interested in stained glass windows. I know this place with some lovely stained glass windows. Would you like to come and see? And the answer is not really. (laughs) What beautiful stones, the disciples say to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, do you see these great buildings? They're big, aren't they? Pretty massive, pretty solid. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What? And then the text goes straight on in sort of typical Mark fashion. He jumps. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is about a half an hour walk. It's above Jerusalem. And they're sitting on the Mount of Olives now, the disciples, opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew, four of the disciples, come and ask him privately, hey, Jesus, you know, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, I don't know, but presumably they've seen Jesus calming storms. They've seen Jesus raising people from the dead. By now, they're like, if Jesus, if you say this is going to happen, it's going to happen. But it seems pretty extraordinary. And Jesus turns to them because this is a teachable moment and he says, I am glad you asked. Are you glad you came to church this morning? I'm so glad you asked. And he kind of pulls open the fire hose and goes, let me tell you a lot of stuff very quickly. And he's teaching it not because he wants us all to speculate about when or what the end will look like, but because he knows his disciples are about to go through a massive trauma called Easter. Difficult to overestimate the scale of the trauma they're about to go through. It's like having endless SATs, one after the other. You've got the high of Palm Sunday, the shock of the arrest of Jesus, the terror of the trial, and then the devastation of the cross. Massive trauma. And so Jesus is talking to them, preparing them, getting them ready for the now. And he repeats various themes or ideas. It's a little bit like a piece of jazz music. You get various ideas, they kind of interweave. It's not very linear. 
It's a little bit stream of conscious. And it's possible that the author Mark has just collected Jesus' sayings about the end. That's possible. But it's also possible that Jesus is trying to help them navigate the now with things that are really kind of incomprehensible. So he has to kind of play around with these ideas. And the first riff, the first theme you get, is that as things get hard, do not be deceived. Things are going to get hard, but as they do, don't be deceived. And Jesus began to say to them, in answer to the question, when will this happen? Jesus doesn't answer that at all. And he says to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And then later, after this passage that we read, he says it again, riffs on it again. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ's And false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. That's us. But be on your guard. Stay awake. Stay woke. Because I've told you these things beforehand. Okay? Don't be naive. There are going to be lots of kingdoms that compete for your attention, Jesus is saying. It's true for us, right? Lots of ideas of how life will get better or how we will save ourselves or others around us. It's going to come. And we know that actually the disciples will turn away from Jesus almost immediately after the crucifixion. Remember the story of the road to Emmaus? Two disciples walking along, Jesus falls beside them and walks. Where are they going? Emmaus. What's interesting about Emmaus? It was the site of an insurrection, right? Another idea of how you will save Israel, Emmaus. Rise up. And indeed, a hundred years later, A man called Simon Bar Kochba was hailed as the Messiah, a Jewish man. He led a revolt against Rome, disastrous one. There will be other people who come and compete for your attention and say there's another way to get to the kingdom. And it's fair to assume that Jesus would also have meant that all kinds of messiahs, not just people, but all kinds of messiahship ideas, competing ideas, wealth, health, political power, Knowledge. Are they your messiahs? Are they going to save you? No, says Jesus. Lest you be deceived, let me be absolutely clear. There's only one hope, only one messiah, and yes, I am coming back. That is not a secondary teaching of Christianity. It is fundamental. So he riffs on another theme, the son of man theme. Jesus' favorite self-designation. He, everywhere he went, he said, I am the son of man. I, the son of man. Interesting. This is what he says to the disciples. But in those days, after that tribulation, there's trouble ahead. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. It's apocalyptic language. It's poetic. And the stars will be falling down from heaven. Doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly what's going to happen. Okay? And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Everywhere he's gone, he said, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. I thought he was the Son of God. No? Why does he call himself the son of man then? Is he just being nice to us? I'm one of you guys? Not really. He's referring to a very well-known Jewish text from Daniel that we read this morning. I saw in the night visions. This is Daniel. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came down to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is the great Jewish hope. That is the great Christian hope. It hasn't changed. The great hope of the people of God has always been that God would ultimately come to dwell in his creation with his image and restore his kingdom over all the earth. Good news, right? But the problem is, Jesus wants to warn us, is that for us living now, it ain't going to feel like that. It's just not going to feel very good a lot of the time. You see, if being deceived is a spiritual problem, another problem is us and our emotions. I am, I don't know how I come across, I know I'm more British and stuff and calm, like all British people, just see Brexit. <laughs> but you talk to my wife, and you, she will tell you that I'm a highly emotional person. I am up, and I'm going to conquer the world, and then I am down, and everything is at the end. That's what I'm like. So Jesus says, don't be deceived. There is only one Messiah. He's coming back. But secondly, don't be dismayed. Be on your guard, he says to his disciples, because it's going to get pretty tough. From here on in, things are not going to be good. They'll deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. That sounds like fun. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. It's going to be tough, but don't dismayed, because these are the labor pains of the new heavens and the new earth. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. He's saying this to his disciples, but he's saying it to us. This must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are the beginnings of the birth pains. That's what we're living through. Now, I have three children, and I'm going to get myself in trouble here as a man. But labor is not easy, right? <laughs> if you're a mom, just say amen. <laughs> it's hard to watch your wife, wherever she is over there, go through that intense level of pain. It's very difficult. And there are certain things that I've learned not to do. So in the first child, the uh, midwife, or nurse, I can't remember, um, uh, you know, right sort of at the critical moment, uh, was, it invited me to hold or support a part of my wife's anatomy while the birth was going on. So I did. And as I held it, I was like, oh, my back is really getting painful here. <laughs> I don't think I can keep going. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to say that right now. <laughs> Just a little advice for the future. The second, that was quite a quick birth, actually, mercifully. The second birth seemed to go on forever, and I really wanted to go home and have a nap. <laughs> not going to do, not going to say that. So Jesus says all, this, all these troubles, these things that we will experience, his disciples would experience intensely and immediately, and we will go on experiencing as disciples, his disciples, he says, in the midst of that, don't be deceived, don't be dismayed, but stay awake. Stay awake while the labor pains of the new creation are going on. Again, this is the same passage towards the end of the chapter, which we didn't read this morning. 
He says this, Jesus says this to us. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in the heaven, that's interesting, nor the Son, even more interesting, but only the Father. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all is stay awake. Have you got it? Pretty clear. And I use the word woke which I understand has to do with justice and racism. So in many ways, it's not really appropriate. But I think the danger is in staying, in thinking about this word awake, is we think it's just like propping your eyes open with matchsticks, desperately holding on. But really in the context, Jesus is saying, stay aware of what is going on around you. Stay alive to it. Don't drift off into some sort of comfortable whatever. Stay woke. Because we are living now in the end. It's one of the most complex parts of this passage. I'm going to just finish with this. We all want to know when, don't we, really? Come on. Wouldn't we like to know? Be on the 3rd of January... 2034. But in this passage, the when is not only not stated, but it's the most complex part of this scripture. Because it's not really clear what Jesus is talking about as the end. Is he talking about the temple? Bear in mind that this was written, Mark's gospel was written sometime after, possibly before the destruction of the physical temple, but possibly after. So possibly Mark is remembering, or the disciples or whoever influenced Mark, oh, do you remember Jesus told us about this? That the temple would be destroyed, the physical temple. He could be talking about that. But he could be talking about himself, because didn't Jesus refer to himself as the temple? And clearly he hasn't returned, and God's kingdom and dominion has not been fully established, so the end must be yet to come. So what is he talking about? Is he talking about the physical temple, his return, his death on a cross? And people argue about this kind of stuff. Or is it all three? And the reason that Mark and Jesus doesn't separate them all out neatly for us into a little timeline is because there's a sort of sense here, and this is difficult for us to get our heads around, of what scholars sometimes call a prophetic shortening of time. It's as if time all collapses in on itself. You see, we're very Western. We can't help it. I'm sorry. But we like things in a nice linear fashion, right? The past is the past. We want to deal with it and get over it, right? Isn't that the way? Yeah. Then there's the present. That's now. And the future is there, out there. Try, we try and control it. But, so we're very linear. It helps us to get to work on time. But it's not the only way that people have understood time. Not the only way that different cultures understand time. There are different cultures, and the Hebrew culture would have been, see, time more like a cycle. Or maybe a spiral, because it's going somewhere, but it's kind of going round and in on itself. 
And so the past is still alive to a Hebrew mind in the present, and the future is already here in the present. So possibly Jesus' death is the destruction of the temple, the old order, religion and resurrection, it's the new creation, the new order, which is going to be played out physically in the destruction of the physical temple, which is a sign of the beginning of the final passing away and the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. It's all kind of one thing that we are supposed to be alive to and see happening around us. God's kingdom breaking in. See, Jesus has come. It's a historic claim. And when he came, he was, in his death and resurrection, the new creation already here. The end is already now. We're living in it. We're living through the end times. The man with the placard, he's a bit weird, but he's kind of right. Not right in speculating that it's going to happen tomorrow, but right in saying that the end is present and we are living through it. The birth pains, it's already coming. So we need to stay alive to it. Don't be deceived. Don't be dismayed. Stay woke. The end is now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we continue to worship you, as we come and take communion together, as we sing your songs, would you wake us up? Wake us up to the time we are living in, that we would not be deceived or dismayed, but we would be alive and aware by your Holy Spirit to the birth pains of your new creation. Already here, yet to come. Lord, forgive us where we have quietly fallen asleep. Would you make our hearts open and aware to your work in the world and each other? And we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.